This is Circulating Ideas, episode 212, and I'm Steve Thomas. My guest today is Donald Cohen. He is the co-author of the new book, The Privatization of Everything, How the Plunder of Public Goods Transformed America and How We Can Fight Back. Circulating Ideas is brought to you with support from every library and from syndetics.com. And from listeners just like you. Find out how you can help support the show by going to circulatingideas.com slash support. This episode of the show is sponsored by Every Library, the National Political Action Committee for Libraries. Every Library helps support the funding formula for public and school libraries so our public institutions can employ great people. You can see more about their pro bono support for libraries on the ballot and school librarians in crisis at everylibrary.org and saveschoollibrarians.org. This episode is also brought to you by Syndetics Unbound from ProQuest and Library Thing. Syndetics Unbound helps public and academic libraries enrich their catalogs and discovery systems with high-interest elements, including cover images, summaries, author profiles, similar books, reviews, and more. Synthetics Unbound encourages serendipitous discovery and higher collection usage and was awarded platinum distinction in the Library Works 2021 Modern Library Awards. To learn more about Synthetics Unbound, visit syndetics.com, S-Y-N-D-E-T-I-C-S dot com. While there, be sure to visit the Synthetics Unbound blog for news and analysis, including a breakdown of top library's top titles and other stories of interest to the library community. Again, that's Syndetics.com to learn more about today's sponsor, Syndetics Unbound. Donald Cohen, welcome to Circulating Ideas. We're going to talk mostly today about the privatization of everything, which is the new book by you and Alan McCallion. But before we get too much into it, can you let listeners know a little bit about you? Sure, happy to and happy to be here. I am the executive director of an organization called In the Public Interest, and we're a research and policy center that focuses on public services and public goods, look at the impact of private privatization on public goods and the, the need for revenues and how we can create better public services. I've been doing that for about 10, 12 years, and we work with groups and policymakers and folks all over the country. And how about your co-author? Alan is a writer and a historian. He's written several other books, and we've known each other a long time, decided to write it together. There is some history infused within the book, which I think makes it really, really interesting. Just so we can have a foundation for our conversation, how would you define privatization? I have a very um, specific definition that I use, and it's private control and power over public goods which is a little broader than most people think of it. They think of outsourcing or selling off a water system or a bridge or outsourcing a library or what have you. But private control can come you know, over the things that matter to us all, public goods, in a variety of ways. For example, if there are not adequate public budgets to fund social services or libraries or whatever, then folks are left on their own to deal with our basic needs. Austerity, some people refer to it as, but not enough public resources to meet the demands for public goods, which I'm defining also as the things that we all need and that we can only accomplish if we do them together, health and community and democracy and the economy and a variety of other things. Privatization also includes when we fail to adequately protect the public from pollution or workplace accidents or climate change. 
that if there are private corporations or private companies that are polluting and not adequately regulated or monitored, then they have excess control over our health and our survivability and all of that. So it's a pretty broad definition, but it gets down to who controls the things that matter to us all, private interests or the public. And you talk in the book about how it's often just a political strategy, and it's not so much that they think the private sector can actually do a better job. They just want it off the government's books. Yeah, well, that's a piece of it. I'd say there's several pieces where it's coming from now. One is absolutely there are a set of conservative strategists that in starting during the Reagan administration and beyond thinking you know, that they want to shrink government, that have a different worldview about what government should and shouldn't do. And they see privatization as a way to offload those services to the private sector. But there's also trillions of dollars. Before COVID, there were roughly $7 trillion a year spent by state, local, uh, federal government agencies. And when you run a corporation, that's a revenue stream that you don't want to give up. So there's a lot of pressure from companies that just want the business. And so that's a big piece of it as well. And those companies have lobbyists who talk to the politicians, and it's a vicious circle. Absolutely. And politicians or elected officials, if you're a mayor, you have lots of things on your plate and a company says, I can take this problem off your hands and I'll make it cheaper and better and faster and all of that. And you can see where mayors will say, yeah, why don't I outsource this? One less headache. And there are conservative elected officials who say that's our job is we want to outsource everything because we want to make government smaller. It's not as though you're against all instances of private industry working with the government. A a prime example you mentioned is roads. We don't expect government workers to actually build the roads. A private contractor can be brought in to do that work and then hand off the ensuing public good to the hands of the government and to the people. No, we all contract for things. Individuals, companies, governments, we all contract for things. That's not the issue. The issue is the control. So yes, we hire you know, general contractors to build our roads. We might even hire a company to develop a new software system for a library or a city. That's all possible. But the issue is whether you give it to them to run it and to own it and to control it. That's where there's danger. And then even in the places where we're just contracting for something, we need to make sure we do that right that there's adequate monitoring, that the contracts are written well, that the public is getting a good deal. And all the above, contracting is a standard practice that everyone uses. We need to make sure we do it right. And we definitely need to make sure that we're not, when we sign the contract, giving them a power over things that we should have democratic control over. We really lose a significant amount of transparency. Once something goes behind a private wall, We do not have access to the information that we would have if it was public. If a city or a county is spending money, we can find out what every dollar is being spent for. We can find out how much the people are paid. All of the above, once it goes behind that wall, we lose transparency. We lose access to that information. And then in some cases, the private company will say, you actually can't get it because it's a trade secret. Charter schools are publicly funded, privately operated schools. There are charter schools that say that their lesson plans our trade secrets and won't share them, even though we paid for them. And they, that's the purpose of charter schools to create innovation and to share those. In, in 2009, Chicago sold off its 36,000 parking meters for 75 years to a consortium of uh, Morgan Stanley, a fund from the Middle East, a national parking company. And so they got a $1.1 billion up front. The city desperately needed cash during the recession. But what turned out to be true afterwards, that if the city now wants to 
create bike lanes or a street mall and eliminate cars or bus rapid transit lane or what have you, they need to buy those spots back, which means in many cases uh, they don't do it because they don't have the resources to do that. So fundamentally, the city has given control for 70 some years to these private operators over really fundamental municipal policy issues, land use, transportation, climate, affordable housing, a whole set of things. That's the problem of this, is it really affects our ability to make the decisions that ought to be ours, and certainly not for 75 years into the future. A disturbing percentage of privatization projects came about in opposition to civil rights, uh, such as the rise of private schools. Yeah, after the Brown versus Board of Education was forcing uh, school districts in the South primarily to integrate, the response by different states was to create voucher programs and essentially what became white flight segregation academies. Now, ultimately, those voucher programs were found unconstitutional, but the, the segregation academies you know, persisted to this date in some of the places in some form or another, mostly through residential segregation. But privatization of public education started as a segregationist response to integration in the 50s. There's a chapter that goes through the history from Milton Friedman to today, and it's pretty clear that this is not just a pile-on for conservatives. President Clinton in particular, but also President Obama, made massive investments in privatization. It's absolutely not. Reagan came in as the nine most dangerous words in the English language, or I'm from the government and I'm here to help. That's kind of the well-known statement. But he actually failed to privatize a lot, even though they wanted to. The Democrats still controlled Congress. It was a different political time. Clinton did actually do a lot. He actually did sort of supercharge privatization. The 1996 welfare reform law, TANF, opened the door for privatization of big pieces of welfare around the country. He actually did a lot. And he appointed Vice President Gore to create the National Performance Review, retool and reimagine government. That's not all bad. You always want to improve bureaucracies and how things work. But privatization was baked pretty deeply within it. Both from an idea perspective, businesses can do things better and let's have them do it, but also political as well. It's like when people say they want the government to be run like a business, but that falls down because the government is not a business and it's dishonest about the way the government is run. Yeah, I completely agree. There's a difference if you said we would like to learn management techniques from successful businesses. Okay, there might be some things we could learn. We think public institutions ought to be managed really well. There's no question about that. But as you say, it's not a business. Businesses don't serve everyone. They serve the people who can buy what they're selling. And that's what they do. Governments don't have that luxury, nor do we want them to have that luxury. We have to serve everybody. And, and in fact, not just because everyone deserves the services, is because we all do better when everyone does better. It's in my interest and in your interest for every kid to, to have a good education my kids are old. I have grandkids now, but it's in my interest for every kid in my neighborhood and throughout the city and the country to be educated well. It's not just about those families. What matters to each one of us actually matters to us all. The whole idea of the rugged individualist is really just been spun out of control, where sure, you should be free to make your own way in the world, but you can't just think of yourself. It's selfish. And your destiny is aided, controlled, impacted, by things outside of your control also, right? You could be right. a rugged individualist, but if you don't have water because your water system fell apart in your city, you can be as rugged or as individualist as you can, but you're still not going to be able to flush the toilet. 
And so right. you're right. People have responsibilities. People have to do their part. We all have to do that, but we all have to do it together. One of the things we talk about in the book is we're citizens, small c, not consumers, right? So we have rights, we have responsibilities, we have obligations to each other, to ourselves. And that's different from being consumers that you're really just on your own. You're buying what you need or can afford. Some of the pushback this gets is that's communism, but it's the constitution. <laughs> it's what we are. Well, it's not communism. It's democracy. It's deciding to run a country together. Majority rules means your ideas win sometimes, your ideas lose sometimes, but we're all in it together because we've decided to do it that way. And that's all it is which means we need to be able to do the things that affect us all with, with special care. I mean, air pollution or climate change, we're all in or all out on that one. People have lost a sense of empathy, and you can go so far as to say that there are people who won't even admit that there are systemic problems. I think the, the, the lack of empathy, the lack of the dismantling or the defraying of community, spirit of community and actual community, is at the core of the problem with privatization. Because the more we stratify, the more we segment, which is real huge impacts of privatization, the less we interact with each other, the less we see our interests tied together. And when that's the case, we go into our bubbles and we don't see, we, we can't see the world through the eyes of others. It's crucially important. And privatization weakens that. It, it breaks the ties that we have with, uh, with each other in very real ways. I'll give an example I'm thinking about. Social Security. Um, Social Security is everybody, all in. When when you turn 65, you're eligible for Social Security and Medicare. Everybody. So that program is impossible to eliminate, number one. But had George W. Bush been successful in privatizing, where we were just all being 401ks, then all we'd be thinking about is our 401k, our investments, not the health of the system, so that every person over 65 has some level of economic security. One of the big things today is how much should the government be involved in healthcare? Right now, the base is only that people get emergency care, and that's really just not good enough. That's not a good enough floor. That that can't be the minimum. Well, in COVID, we now know that it, it, everybody, we need everyone to be healthy for us each to be healthy. I mean, that's just sort of crystal clear right now. It's just in terms of healthcare, if you decide that everyone should have equal access to ability to see a doctor and get care. That should not depend on how much money you have. Then you you can only accomplish that with government involvement. Now, that doesn't mean that there's no private health care. You can do it in different ways. You could create a single payer system. You could create an Obamacare, more in that direction, your employer mandate. You can do it in lots of different ways. But the only way to get everybody equal access to health care is with government involvement. There's no other way. COVID gave you a great introduction to the book because Trump's response was a perfect example of the kind of things you're talking about. Trump's first response was a privatized response. Let the market take care of this. What did we need at first? First, we needed PPE and ventilators and equipment and test kits. We needed to get that in the hands of everybody ASAP as quickly as possible. And his first response is to let the market do that. Let states bid against each other on the private market to buy those things. And so that's what happened. States couldn't get it. They were competing against each other. The companies were taking advantage of having a seller's market, increasing their prices because the demand was so high. It was nuts. And it, it contributed to lives being lost. So that was his basic problem. This is a crisis. So I can understand some confusion about having to get a hand on a crisis, but Trump's was ideological and, and who he was friends with. 
the private market can take care of everything. Let's let it work itself out. And also handing over full access to the patents of the vaccines, even though we fundamentally paid for them all. We gave Moderna a grant. We didn't give that to Pfizer, but they got a pre-buy agreement. So there was essentially a grant. And now they still have control over the, the patent, which limited the ability to get other companies doing generics quickly so that we could get vaccines in, in people's arms more quickly. So there was a wholesale response of, let's give this to the private market. I think the government should be more willing to break patents during emergencies like the pandemic, like the vaccines should be open for other countries to produce more easily. That's exactly right. That's the difference between public and private. We can respond to public need when things happen that, re that require response that don't depend on profit, that don't depend on a, a company's bottom line. Now, we could have given them a profit. We could have just set a deal, you get 9%, and then we'll take the patent. They, you know, they can make money. That's not a problem. Mm -hmm. But that's the issue. Who has control over it? We should have control over our health. We should certainly have our control over the, our health and the global health in, a, in the context of a pandemic or floods. This is a little bit of a different example, but Indiana many years ago privatized one, its toll road to a company yeah. and there was a flood and the governor said you had to open the toll gates so people can escape. And then the, the state got a bill. They paid it, I'm sure, but you wouldn't want that in any governor's head. Oh my God. Do I do this or do I spend a million dollars to save lives? It should be a decidedly public decision, not constrained by the need to you know, keep a private company's interest whole. When it comes to the environment, our water, our air, that affects all of us. It makes the world a worse place for us, much less future generations. You were referring to individualism earlier. We are all individuals, obviously, but we're also completely interdependent, whether we like it or not, whether we admit it or not. We depend on each other, in fact. <laughs> the water comes out of my tap because people pay taxes and water bills to keep the water system. The air is clean because people in my neighborhood are not polluting. And you could just go down the list. And COVID just punctuates that with you know quite a few exclamation points. We depend on each other. We're seeing that interdependency with the supply chain issues now. That's right. It underlines that we are kind of all in it together here. Another example you bring up is private prisons. President Obama had scaled back their use and Hillary Clinton had pledged to withdraw from them completely. But when Trump won, he pushed us back in hard. And of course, once they started the harsher border enforcement, there were all these people that suddenly needed prison cells. And voila, private prisons were there. Well, yeah, I would say two things. One is that it's morally reprehensible to make profit off of incarceration. But setting that aside, it's another example of our just interests are different. It's in a private prison company. There's two kind of big ones, CoreCivic and Geo Group. It's in their interest to have heads and beds. They make money. That's, that's what they sell. They're a company that sells things. They sell heads and beds in prisons. It's in our interest to have fewer heads and beds, to, have, you know, to reduce prison population. We looked at private prison contracts in states across the country and found that two-thirds of them had bed guarantees. In other words, keep the beds filled or pay anyway. Some 80%, some were 90%, some had 100%. So obviously it's in their interests to keep the beds filled. Then it makes it easier for the public agency to keep the beds filled because, okay, we got to pay anyway. Why do something else? As opposed to if it was public, we could take that money and put it into a reentry program or a drug treatment program or what have you. We talked about that a little with the social safety net. Clinton was working hard to get people off the social safety net services. That's right. Yeah, that, that's right. We always look at the perverse incentives in contracts and 
I, I may get this wrong because it was a while back now, but what uh, a researcher found, and I think it was one of the social service contracts in Texas that may have related to the welfare system, is that their compensation scheme in the contract was the metrics were how many times they touched the document, how many times the, the document went through a procedure you know, right. for eligibility or what have you. So that was incentivizing more bureaucratic delays. It was actually in their interest to keep people in the system. That's the same in others as well. So it's all in the incentives. It's all in how the contract is written, what the restrictions are the contract, what the contract doesn't allow, what the contract doesn't take into consideration, because then it won't happen, and how much money is being taken out of the service for company profits or high executive compensation or what have you. Those are the core issues. Everybody becomes a commodity, a, a widget or a, a point of you know, sales. If you're a company, companies do one thing, they sell things. There's nothing wrong with that. We all buy things, but that's all they do. And so what do they care about? They care about volume. They care about revenue. They care about costs. They care about market share and they care about profit margin. That's it. I'm not saying that they don't care about the service they do. They're, they're human beings. But in terms of what they measure and what they focus and how they determine successes, though, that's it, those four things. And that's just different from what we need to do. It's about incentives. Companies on the stock market need to grow, 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 and cannot be content with just stable profitability. In some of these public-private partnerships and these long-term contracts, they're very rigid documents. We can even take this into the library context. And so there's a lot of contract litigation in America. And why is that? Because if people didn't think through exactly all the things that could happen and their language isn't clear enough. So there was different interpretation or someone fails to do what they said they would do or what have you. And so if you sign a contract, then you are locking in certain things which means you are eliminating your ability to be flexible. Now, the public needs flexibility. I will give you a library example. So a pandemic happens, a flood happens, right? And a pandemic happens. What do libraries do? They turn their parking lots into Wi-Fi hotspots for kids. Libraries are helping homelessness in their communities, becoming centers for people to get public services. They're serving as a community need in far more ways than a book repository, very clearly. So let's say you had an LSSI-operated library, and they go, well, that's not in the contract, right? And that's just going to cost us money. Now, there may be some reputational things that just decide they better do it or else they're going to lose the next contract. But for the most part, we no longer have the flexibility to say, we got to do something different next week because there was just a flood or there was just a pandemic or in California, we just had an earthquake or there's this opioid epidemic, you know, ravaging our, our communities, you know, in some rural district. That's a really big issue. We need flexibility because the world changes and we need to be able to respond to it. You mentioned in the book that libraries are second responders. Other agencies should really be taking up the slack, but they're underfunded, much like libraries. But libraries have stepped into the breach to fill some of that slack, like with helping address the homelessness issue. That's also because it is a public service. The librarians are public servants. And yep. so there is that sense of duty to the public to step in. I can't say that a, a librarian that works for the society doesn't feel the same way. Probably does. People who want to be librarians have the same personal instincts. But if you work in a public institution and have those instincts, then you're aligned, right? If you're in a private institution, you have those instincts when you're not aligned. They say, you can't do that because we, you know, we don't have a contract for that. As I was saying earlier, libraries are one of the few literal physical places in our communities where we all 
go get things, where we come together, where we see each other, where we can go and say, hey, that's ours. Uh, I think that's important. This is not the first I've heard of LSSI, but the way the founder talks about librarians is devaluing and frankly insulting (laughs) how he just thinks that people want to sit around and be lazy and then collect their pensions at the end of their career. It's a business mindset, right? And so, yeah, insulting. They're sitting around, they're overpaid, let's let's deprofessionalize, let's cut their wages, all that. From a guy who's never actually run a library, right? He's just a <laughs> business guy. In his mind, the library is really a place to go get books. Or maybe now online, because everything, the world is changing in that way. But it's transactional. Right. It's a place to get a particular service need. But when m- most of us go to the library, and the numbers are large, as you all know, to get help figuring out how to find something. It's by listening to some music that you may not have heard because they have a CD collection. It's about looking through the stacks to find things. It's about a whole set of things, not just about how do I get that book out? So you can imagine, given what's going on in grocery stores or in Home Depot, that you no longer need the librarian to check your book out. You just do it yourself. Yeah. Uh, in LA Public Library has a kiosk like that where I've gone. But you need to be able to ask people questions. That's the key. This is an institution of education and knowledge and community, not Barnes and Noble. Yeah, my library has the self-checkout stations, but it frees up our staff to do more important tasks. The physical act of scanning a barcode or reading an RFID tag doesn't need a human, but we do need help with finding the correct material for someone, connecting the right information, whether it's a book or a movie or a database or whatever. Well, that's a smart use of technology. Take, take the simple thing and do it mechanically, but keep the people to do the real service, uh, a, a real service. Yeah, from LSSI's mindset, if it takes one person to check out books, then you add self-checkout stations and fire that person. Whereas a good library system redeploys that person to do more meaningful work, like connecting with their community. That's right. And listen, Google does not replace a librarian. If you're a student, a high school student, and you got to do a report and you go to the library and you start Googling, you don't know what you're finding or what you're not going to find. You don't know how to pose the questions to the search, the search terms and all that. You need someone to help you. That's what this is. It's an institution of learning. And so you can't just learn by sitting at a computer. I want to talk a little bit about Every Library, who is one of this episode's sponsors. Thank you very much for that. Please go support them. But to set the stage for that, can you talk a little bit about ALEC and what it is? ALEC is a conservative lobby group that's a mix of elected officials and companies that meet. They have committees and different subject, you know, public service areas, corrections, and maybe even libraries. I'm not actually sure. And they work together to write laws actually, that helped the corporate sponsors who were paying for it. A while back, we were talking about private prisons earlier. I think they left Alec because they got a lot of heat for it. But the private prison companies co-chaired with an elected official, the Criminal Justice Committee of Alec, and wrote strong on crime bills or three strikes you're out bills. And so that's the institution where they come together and and do that. It's a very business-friendly organization. They're doing all sorts of things about voter suppression laws now. It's the conservative place where a lot of these model legislations are coming out of. Right. They're writing that model legislation and then handing it off to legislators who then go and pass it. That's why so many laws in various states uh, have very similar language. 
every library is not exactly the anti-ALEC, but they do fight for libraries and the public good, whereas ALEC seems to lean much more toward helping private interests over public goods. That's exactly right. The good news in libraries is, you know, LSI has lost a lot of fights. Libraries do have a special place in people's hearts and minds and communities. Librarians, when you do polling in political campaigns or what have you, librarians come out on the top of people who are trusted in their communities. And LSSI has tried to privatize a bunch of places where they have failed. uh, There was one in Florida that we were helping a while back. But they're a company, right? And so what they're trying to do is sell what they've got. And we got an email from a librarian in, uh, in Florida. We wanted some information because, according to him, LSSI was sniffing around his part of the state. They're just looking for contracts. And who decides who, who gives those contracts? It's a city council or it's a library board or whoever it is, which means it's a very political process. So it's either a conservative who thinks it's the right thing or it's somebody who likes businesses for any other number of reasons, like campaign contributions or what have you. And have you done some work with every library before? We work with so many different groups and so many different things. We know them. We know each other well. And so I think we just sort of refer to each other at times. I don't know if we've actually done any projects together, but we consider them a a partner and an ally. Yeah, you're on parallel tracks. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. We believe in public goods and public services and libraries are absolutely for, for all the reasons that we've been talking about here. To wrap up, what are some things that we can do to help reverse this trend to fight for the public good? There's big picture answer to that in the smaller picture. Big picture is always the public services and public goods are all around us. Government action is all around us. It's in the paint in the wall behind our rooms because there used to be lead in paint and the government regulations eliminated that paint. When we turn on the tap or flush the toilet, our trash gets picked up. The post office around the corner, the library around the corner of school, it's all around us. So it's remembering that in a time when there's so much disparagement of government, that people first remember, it's all around us. The second thing, again, at the 30,000 foot level is to you know, remember what it's for. Like I said, libraries are not about taking out books. I mean, you do that there. But what it's about, is it's social. It brings us together in community. It's the place where we expand knowledge. People get more access to knowledge and learning. It has a bigger purpose that's more than just serving you as an individual. Everybody who listens to, to this podcast will know that. But it's important to always remember that and bring people back to that. If all you think of it as a place to get books, then why not give it to a private company? But that's not what it's about. So remember that. What are roads? Roads give us mobility. We can't get to work. We can't get to school. We can't go to the grocery store. That's what roads are. It's about allowing us to move around. And we need to be able to move around freely. So that's the first thing. The second thing, of course, in, you know, in a local community is to be engaged with organizations or civic institutions, or if they're librarians with the friends of the library, to be on the lookout. Keeping in tune is really, really important, ear to the ground, and then engaging with others to say no. Lots of communities have done that. So lots of organizations have created to fight the library privatization and one, and whether they stay together or not. And then I guess finally, as an individual, libraries often don't have enough money, right? Public services don't have enough money. I think Los Angeles did a few years ago a ballot measure to allocate 6% of the budget, I believe, if I have it correctly, to, to the public library system so we you know, it can survive. So whether it's allocating existing money or passing a bond measure to expand a library or increasing the budget so it can in, uh, expand its services or collections, all that's something we, we've got to do. We've got to pay for things. 
So those are just some ideas. You have to get people to uh, vote to get the people into office to implement those policies. That matters. But you have to always educate. Because like I was saying a number of minutes back is you get elected to pick a mayor because it's really an on-the-ground job in many ways. And you got all these problems and a a budget that's too small to meet the needs and the the things that you'd like to do and the needs of the, the people who live in your community. Someone comes to you and says, I'll take this headache off your back. By the way, business does everything better anyway, of course. That's just taken as a fact, even though not true. And we'll save you money. And people may say, okay, I guess so. They may just feel desperate. And so we've got to keep educating them. Because what happens is they sell off their parking meters or they, they outsource their library. And four years later, the collections has gone down. The services have gone down. People are unhappy. You got to know that stuff before you make decisions. Donald, thank you so much for talking through this with us. And for much more details, listeners should check out the book, which again is The Privatization of Everything by Donald Cohen, my guest here today, and Alan McCallion. If listeners want to learn more about the topic or engage with you, how can they get in touch with you? The organization website is www.inthepublicinterest.org. My email is info at in the public interest. We'll see it. It'll get responded to quite quickly. Don't hesitate. We work with folks around the country. We have ideas. We have kind of tips and tools on how to help get on our email list because we send out stuff every week and we deal with public services of all kinds. I've been encouraging people to go to their local independent bookstore to order the book because we want to support independent bookstores. If you have a library, you can add it to the collection and don't hesitate to get in touch. Thanks so much, Donald. Thanks for having me. Circulating Ideas is produced in the suburbs of Atlanta. Views expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect those of my place of work or the place of work of guests. For past interviews, visit circulatingideas.com and follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, or your podcast app of choice. And help others find the show by leaving a rating or a review. To learn more about this episode's guest, sign up for the Circulating Ideas newsletter. You can find the link in the show notes or on the site. Theme music is by Pamela Klicka, and the logo is by Shandy Fry. Thank you for listening, and keep circulating your ideas. Thank you.